episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, our community radio station. I also want to welcome our viewers on YouTube as well as BCTV. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and today on the show, we have regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, of course. Hey, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And we have Michael Monty from the Burlington area to talk about his early work with what Burlington calls neighborhood planning assemblies. And Emily and I are excited to talk to you about this today, Michael, because we are always curious, like, how can we have better community conversations? And how can we get more people involved in the policy and the democracy of their communities? So thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Thanks, Olga. Thank you for inviting me. So before we get started with the neighborhood planning assemblies, um, could we touch base with you, Emily, about some changes that the that the legislature is making or has made? Is about to make or hopes to make. Hopes Hopes to make. make. Okay. Hopes to make. So, um, you know, Vermont, we've talked about this so much, and that's why Michael's here today. Vermont prides itself on this civic participation and on community meeting and on town meeting and this longstanding institution of decisions being made in town meeting. We know that um, so much of the challenges around Act 46 in our area were about people fearing that town meeting would be losing some of its power and its decision-making power and that people wouldn't have a reason to show up anymore to share food and conversation and make decisions together. Um, I think a lot of folks think that why um, our legislature sort of gets along so well and works across party lines so effectively is because of our history of town meeting and really sort of working in a non-political environment to do um, politics and government. And then in Brattleboro, we um, have a very special form of government that no one else in Vermont has. And I don't know if you know this, Michael, but we have something called representative town meeting, which is sort of halfway between town meeting and um, sort of a more standard form of elected government, like what they have in Burlington. And so we have a select board and a town manager, which is very standard across smaller towns in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And then we had town meeting and actually folks were, um, concerned that not enough people were coming to town meeting. And so in order to create more of a sense of obligation, the story goes, I'm sure there much more happened there, but this is a story I've always been told. In order to create a sense of obligation to have enough people at town meeting, the idea who are paying enough attention, the idea was that we would have elected representatives to town meeting. And so our town meeting in Brattleboro does not happen on town meeting day. On town meeting day, we elect people who will attend the representative town meeting a couple weeks later. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that in Brattleboro, um, many, most other towns had their town meeting this last March and then everything shut down four days later. Mm -hmm. And so Brattleboro was not able to have its town meeting this last March and we pushed the date and pushed the date. We actually had special legislation passed so that we could have a budget in July. And then this fall, the town, especially Patrick Moreland did a huge amount of work to move the entire thing onto Zoom um, and to get 
training for a whole lot of people who don't use computers regularly and to set up the library as a special place where people could be on a computer individually with tech support on hand for them. And it was incredibly successful. Like really, I spend a lot of time and a lot of very bad Zoom meetings. And this was one of the best run ones I've been to. Yes. Patrick deserves a huge round of applause for the work he put into it. He does. And all of the town meeting representatives do too, because people are like really flexible, willing to learn a new skill in order to participate. I think some people who hadn't been on a computer in years jumped in. It was very cool. So all that background to say, now the whole rest of the state is catching up with the same problem that Brattleboro had in April. And so even though the biennium hasn't started yet, we have not been sworn in yet. Um, we are all working full time for no compensation with no staff and no pet and no, you know, space to do that and getting ready for the new biennium. Um, <laughs> and that's just how your citizen legislature operates. I'm not complaining. I just want to make sure everyone understands. So one of the first bills that we're going to work on, in fact, the first bill we're going to work on is to make some changes to town meeting. So all of the other towns throughout Vermont can figure out what they're going to do with their government. And um, because usually the first few weeks of a biennium, there's no legislation at all. We're all just getting oriented, figuring out who our committees are, learning things, etc. cetera. Um, but because there's really a time crunch here, because town meeting's coming up fast, we're going to need to pass this really quickly. And so we're talking about it much more than we would sort of talk about an official piece of legislation before the session starts. So what this will do is give towns a lot more choices in how they will um, negotiate the process. So towns are gonna be allowed to, and this honestly does not impact Brattleboro at all because we have our own special thing and we've already figured out our own special thing. But other towns are going to be allowed to um, sort of just make the choice at the select board level to move to an Australian ballot for any decisions that they need to to mail out ballots if they want to, or not mail out ballots if they don't want to, um, or to just push the date until a time as say like vaccines work or it's warm enough outside that people could have town meetings outside or whatever that is. And that's not just towns, it's any legal municipality, which counts, um, which includes fire districts and school districts and um, waste districts and communication union districts all of those different sort of governance structures are all gonna be allowed to be much more flexible in how they do things this year. So all that to say, um, one of the things that we've been really fascinated here on the happy hour is that it never really feels like town meeting is that effective a place to make any decisions because the decision that you have before you is already framed before you arrive. Mm -hmm. And so you can vote yay or nay, you can amend or not, but all the framing is already set up. And it's in our community, at least, people are often really eager to participate and shape those decisions, but they're not even sure where the point is where they should enter the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are you know, very much a community of do-gooders, of believer in government and school budgets and all of that. So people don't wanna vote down the budget they generally just want to change it, but they're, you know, it's very hard to do once we're already at town meeting. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard about, and actually lived in Burlington for a little while, the neighborhood planning assembly, it seems like such an incredible opportunity to do the work that's 
the participatory work that builds up to the final decisions and the framing. And so we wanted to have you on the show, Michael, to tell us about how that works and why it works and what the goals were and just like, tell us the fairy tale. Oh, fairy tale. That's great. Thank you. And um, so it sounds like the state, it has to create a, basically a blanket charter change for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead and do what you want. Cause mm -hmm. huh. Well, that's and it's going to, my guess is it's going to be temporary just for the pandemic. And then yeah. everyone's going to have to go back to the. So uh, the, the history is very, um, is, um, is a good one. I think, uh, I mean, I kind I came into the sort of the work in Burlington being kind of a, you know, community organizer, you know, post the anti-war uh, revolutionary change agent and, um, you know, believe strongly in municipal activism, sort of the Mary Bookchin sort of approach to sort of changing government from a centralized federal Washington, D.C. run to a locally controlled, locally run, locally organized, um, you know, a way of just creating our lives. And, and uh, so that I came with that, worked at a youth center that was very much a local neighborhood, King Street Youth Center. Um, it's early days and really was about empowering low-income people, empowering poor folks to take control over what they had in front of them in terms of resources. So I, uh, when I eventually wound up in sort of the early years of the Sanders administration, I worked in the planning department and we, they received some funds. It was the first year. Can you pause for one second? I just want to make sure our listeners understand we're talking about Bernie Sanders when Bernie he was Sanders. mayor. Yes, Bernie okay. Sanders when he was yes. mayor back Back in the, the end of the last century, now I say, um, that, um, back in 1981, Bernie became mayor of Burlington, uh, you know, really sort of had this empowering neighborhoods idea uh, of wanting to sort of see the neighborhoods really, you know, control the resources of the city, which would, in his view, incorrectly, was in the control of a handful of few, just a few folks. And, you know, think the notion of regular people meeting and being able to make decisions and getting access to resources, all of that, all the stuff that Bernie still talks about uh, was still prime in his when he first ran. And I was involved in community organizing and organizing neighborhoods around the city to do the same the same thing. So I joined the planning department um, at the city uh, in 82, and they first this is the first year they received a uh, federal grant called CDBG, Community Development Block Grants, was an entitlement community. And the idea was, well, how do we, how do we decide who gets this money? Um, and so here's a little, I'm taking a little path down here to set to sort of how we got to the end. Yeah, um, I love those. <laughs> how do we, how did we, how do we decide who gets this money? We're getting a million dollars and we need some kind of citizen participation uh, thing. And usually citizen participation in those days meant, you get a you point like 15 advisory committee members and they all decide, mm -hmm. you know, and those citizens now participating as opposed to elected officials or, you know, department heads or something like that. Um, so I had this idea of saying, no, let's create these uh, NPAs, uh, the neighborhood planning assemblies in the low income neighborhoods of the city uh, where the money was going to be spent and let them decide how the money would be spent. Um, they can make the decision on, street sidewalks, housing, whatever they thought was important. Um, Peter Clavel, who became mayor, uh, was mayor for a while uh, for the city of Burlington, was the HR director uh, working for Bernie as well, uh, saw that and said, let's expand it to every ward in the city. 
Mm-hmm. Let's call uh, and let's give them a broad charter. Let them say, let, let's say they could do anything. Mm-hmm. We could actually devolve any part of the city government to the NPAs and help and make and have them decide. So what was a fairly straightforward resolu- uh, idea of empowering poor low, low, low income folks in certain neighborhoods to have more control over resources in their lives turned into the whole city gets this now. Every war, it's organized by ward, not neighborhood. And, and let's, again, give them the, give us in, a, in the authorizing resolution, uh, not a charter, but the authorizing resolution, uh, the power to do anything. So the, you see the list that says, you know, determine where police services are, determine, you know, all the whole thing of whatever city government might do. Wow. So very Can I ask much- a quick question? Do sure. the, the wards in, you, you were very clear to differentiate that it was wards and not neighborhoods. Yeah. How closely do the, because we have sort of three districts in our mm-hmm. community and they don't mm-hmm. line up with neighborhoods at all. They're very much not people's lived experience. Yeah. So how do the wards versus neighborhoods work in Burlington? So that's, that, that's a good, it's a good question because it really sort of lends itself to perhaps, um, you know, s- something that may be a mistake or a problem or an issue. The wards are really can be sprawling through, you know, four or five different neighborhoods. Okay. So my ward is Ward 5. There are really, it goes from the richest neighborhood in the city to the poorest neighborhood in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has everything in between. Great that way. Uh, it's kind of cool that it has a real mix of incomes and peoples and types, household, different kinds of households, you know, formations and, you know, all of that. Uh, but is not, but but is not united in sort of a point of view around what was what's really needed. Mm-hmm. Folks who are very high income don't need much of anything. Poor folks are struggling to get to the meeting, you know. And and so you really have you have this mix. Other na- other wards like wards two and three, um, where Celine is from, uh, a representative from Burlington, uh, is more of a. Um, cohesive neighborhood, um, very much the same. It's the old North End of Burlington. It goes over two neighborhoods. Um, but that that becomes sort of an issue in terms of identity and in terms of access and in terms of how you get people to the meeting and what kind of support you give folks to the meeting. We all know that folks who have resources and money or upper middle class know what to do in a meeting. Um, I, I had this great experience where I would organize these meetings in, this, in the King Street neighborhood, and it took forever to get everybody to simply settle down, you know, to not talk, to not yell and scream, to not jump up and run around. It was just chaos. Um, and, you know, this is something they weren't used to. And I went to City Hall right away, and I sort of facilitated a meeting. And when I asked the question, everybody raised their hand at the same time. And it was like, ah, <laughs> learned behaviors from early on. Uh, meant that they were able to ready and ready to participate. So I think that's something later on we could talk about. But I think uh, sitting in a meeting is something that is a learned thing. Yeah, uh, and it's me- and definitely be, very. It's very cultural what you expect a meeting to be or cultural. how you um, very expect to participate. Yes, absolutely. It's a. Uh, it's like that. Um, the the dining scene in uh, Annie Hall. You know where the. Mm-hmm where the Jewish family is yelling and talking and the Protestant family is sitting there and they're just eating quietly and you know, passing the food around. Yeah. Um, just different cultures do different things. Um, so I, 
so from so from that we began to organize. But the first cool thing we did, I think, was was, uh, was we did take the million dollars and we 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 created uh, packets of money, like we printed out money, million dollar money, dollars, and and like monopoly money. Um, we, you know, printed them out, cut them up, made these packets, and we made like hundreds of packets. And we went to every ward and every NP, the first NPA meeting and said, the first meeting we're doing now is determining where this money goes. And we gave everybody those, those packets of money and said, uh, now you have, and we put up and we had sort of solicited ideas for how to spend the money. And so there were 54 ideas on four pages with envelopes underneath it. And people came to the door, little introduction, mm-hmm. and said, here's the money go ahead and spend it. And we went around and in the first set of NPA meetings, there were 700 or 800 people who participated in various wards, which uh, in Burlington is a pretty good turnout yeah. uh, in terms of participating. Now that was, a, from that we were able then we had to figure out, you know, we didn't think we had to come by afterwards, we had all this money to come for new packages, but we sat there and we were able to sort of figure out what the priorities were, what people really thought should be happening. Uh, and that made that determined the first set of how s- the city would spend its first million dollars of retirement funds. Um, it was, I think nowadays people use dots mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, they put ideas up and they put little green dots or yellow dots. Or I like the dot. I like the monopoly money more I do than the too. dots. That's very fun. Too. It makes it much <laughs> more real. Yeah, yeah it's I, tactile I instead of um, just a million floating out here. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And you really, you know, the, we, we created some rules. We really didn't police it much, but we said you can't put all the money in one envelope. You got to spread it out a little bit, you know, and so people had to think about a little bit where they put the money and how much they put in. <clears throat> so that worked as a process. And but from that, um, the NPAs began to sort of uh, evolve into regular meetings for the city to go and ask uh, the, the citizens, what they really wanted. It really became, um, I used to describe it as the place between municipal government and the, sort of the technocrats and the directors and the, you know, uh, and the elected politicians, the place between that and a regular citizen, the place where they could meet in the middle, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where folks, and it still happens this way, where folks who are elected officials uh, uh, and department heads would go and make representations. Mm-hmm. And the NPA would sort of be able to hear it and be able to then to respond and provide information where the city council on occasion would at through resolution, ask each NPA to elect someone to an advisory body. So similar to what you're doing in Brattleboro where it's sort of representative, but that's the process where you would go instead of the yearly ballot, where you might go to bring somebody in to do advisory and how the money, uh, uh, how the money gets spent. They don't do the dollar thing anymore. Each NPA mm-hmm. now elects a rep to an advisory board, but that that is the place where you can go. It's open. It's open every month or two, depending upon how often they're having the meetings, and people can attend and can get involved. But probably so, the other thing. Go ahead. Sorry, Paula. just to interrupt you quickly, Michael. When you say the the meetings happen depending on what's happening in town government. Can the NPA itself call meetings? Like if there was something the neighborhood was worried about? They yeah, could so say, the, okay. they're, independent, they're independently they're independently operated. Um, I'm going to say independently operated and then 
put a little air quotes on that one. Uh, there isn't there is someone in city government working at the community and economic development office whose responsibility is to uh, provide support and facilitate and organize the NPAs. Each NPA makes a determination of how it operates, how often it meets, all of that. It elects its own steering committee. There is a all NPA meeting where all the representatives of the, of the NPAs come together where they sort of collaborate and discuss how they should be organized, what they should be doing, what they're talking about. They make the determination of the agenda. They set the agenda, they facilitate the meetings. The only thing that the city really winds up doing is sort of making sure that these things are you know, noticed uh, and that there's a certain level of support to make sure they have a place to meet and all of that. Each one operates differently. Uh, the Old North End is a joint one between the wards two and three. They decide to form, come together, have one meeting, and they have this big community meal right before the meeting uh, where, uh, where it really is community organized. People bring different foods and people organize and cook and do all of that. So each, each one does its own, little, its own little thing. Each one has its own style. If you went up to the hill here uh, where folks have a little bit more money, it's a little bit more you know, sit there and have a discussion and, and tell your representative what you think, uh, your city council what you think. But city councilors attend, representatives attend, uh, the mayor goes often enough, um, nonprofit groups will go in depending upon, you know, what they might be doing in terms of impacting a certain neighborhood. So they still, they still do well. They don't really hit, I would say, the, what I had hoped, um, sort of as a, as a book tonight back in the 70s, mm -hmm. um, was a taking over of city government and a dissolving of the form of government where we didn't need elected officials, that really the citizens came together and self-organized. They didn't do that. That wasn't gonna happen really, I don't think. Uh, but they do form and provide a framework for you know, the city. Uh, cities, city, its work, the citizens, and what they think is important. Uh, so, and it really is a sort of meeting ground with middle space. Are they still, um, I have a few questions about resources. I think it's really hugely impactful that the first meeting they ever had was about deciding where actual resources would be allocated rather than just seeking opinions and feedback. Um, and then yeah, how yeah. resourced are they in terms of like, are there stipends? Is there childcare? Is there money for buying snacks? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think I think the, each one has operated a little bit differently. I got to tell you that I can't I can't give you precisely where they are right now, but yeah. they they have had each one organizes and says we want childcare here. Mm -hmm. Some may not really pay attention to it, so it's it's very much like you're going to a different place, a different meeting. Um, it may be like going from one town meeting to another, where mm -hmm. it's organized differently and has a different style of culture. Yeah, um, you know the the old North End one is very much like yeah, we're here where we have meals and we're taught that people are talking to each other. Some people just come for the food and then mm -hmm. they leave and stay a little, but most folks stay a little longer. Each one organizes itself differently, has resources from the city. Different people will hope, would expect that they would have more or less. But all of those things I think are in place if people want to organize that. Well, we, we uh, as a, uh, in my job as a, at the Champlain Housing Trust, we, we created a, the Old North End Community Center and we asked the city of Burlington for support, um, and they did. But one of the caveats was, we want this event hall that's in the ground floor to always be free to the NPAs. 
I said, okay, you know, um, that would be, that would certainly be fine. And uh, we, so they, they can use that space for the most part at any time they want to. We created some limits that they couldn't be every night, every day, but nevertheless, they have that space available to them. So each one of the, each one is resourced in certain ways and meets in certain places and, and does, and does its work. Um, when we, when we, when we did the waterfront, this was a good one. I think when we had, when Burlington, Burlington had a very much an industrial waterfront, uh, which was oil tanks, railroad yards, and a very small spot of what could happen. Uh, there was a private development group that came together uh, to buy up chunks of it and redevelop it, and they had a proposal. That proposal went to every NPA. That had like about 1,500 folks showing up in different places. So it didn't just uh, go to the NPA like in its own geography. It went to every NPA. Every NPA, yeah. Wow. There's no joint meeting of all the NPAs in one big room anywhere. Yeah. I don't think that has ever happened. Uh, it's always been individual neighborhoods, in, individual wards having that opportunity and that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, still, I still think that they are a great form of government. I think in terms of um, providing this sort of more natural tendency of what a neighborhood just simply wants, uh, you know, um, and I, but I do think it provides a city with a form and some substance to really pay attention now to details mm-hmm. uh, that of what the people really want. It's imperfect in, in like about half a dozen ways. Um, want to hear that? Uh, uh, I'd like to hear that quickly, Michael. Um, and then we do have to go to break, okay. but yes, please. We'd love to hear okay. how they're imperfect. Well, I, you know, like I said, I think, I think as, as certain middle-class folks and upper middle-class folks have a tendency to, to know how to pay attention to the details of sort of these forms, you know, these cultural when, forms. When I, um, I lived in the old North end when I was in grad school at UVM with my son who was five at the time. And so um, he went to Barnes, which is oh, um, the elementary school. It yeah. became a magnet school because of um, how incredibly sort of class divided the city was. And so it was, you know, more than 50% non-native English speakers and like definitely minority white. And yet, yet the PTA or whatever, I, I don't know if it was called a PTA, but it was a PTO, at least PTO. when my son was there was like absolutely all other people exactly like me, like, you know, exactly. more than college educated white people. Um, not necessarily all high income, but definitely like very much a culturally middle-class phenomenon, yep. which was like, struck me as absurd even at the time. And that, and that really is the issue. Uh, it really is the, it really is the issue. And, and I, and I think that kind of as a community organizer and working in neighborhoods, I know that it's hard to get low-income folks to be engaged uh, because the daily struggle is really just as enough. You know, or the work of the, what they have to do every day is enough. And then they don't understand or, or don't pay attention to what societal rules are around these things where we create a rules to keep people out. And I think that that's really the struggle. That's the hard part. And in Burlington, which is large number of folks who are now new Americans, uh, recent, recent immigrants, um, the language and that culture, I think, gets to be kind of very difficult in terms of ensuring that the NPAs become fully representative of what's going on in the neighborhoods. So I think that they're imperfect that way. It doesn't mean that they're bad. 
Uh, it just means that that's really hard uh, mm-hmm. to really break through. Uh, and I think there's other forms and other ways of ensuring that people do have access to government and to sort of decision-making and resources and all of those things mm-hmm. uh, that we have to sort of continue to explore and think about. We could try to change the nature of the NPAs, I think. But as long as I think you sit there and you say, this is the form of meeting we're going to have. Mm-hmm. It becomes simply right away a construct, which makes it a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could, we we started doing other things within the city of Burlington in order to ensure that more people had, you know, access to either decision making or certainly access to, um, or we had access to people's opinions, opinions about those things. Fantastic. So we need to go to break so we can hear from some of our underwriters on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. The Montpelier Happy Hour will return in a moment and we will hear more from Michael Monte and the Neighborhood Planning Assemblies. Stay tuned. Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you are just joining us, I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser and Michael Monty from Bur- the Burlington area. And we're talking about Burlington's neighborhood planning assemblies and, and how they can be one more avenue or a form like this can be one more avenue for citizen participation Quickly before I go to guests, we just need to give a apology to listeners with the blizzard that's happening right now. I noticed there's some audio glitches, and so I just apologize. I think that is weather and the joy of being in Vermont at this time of year and our broadband infrastructure and all those fun things. Um, it's so beautiful, though. It really is. I usually get really grouchy with the first snow, but this one is definitely big enough to be <laughs> just incredible. Just snow. Yes. Um, so, Michael, before the break, we were talking about um, some of the ways the neighborhood assemblies worked and, and some of their limitations. Um, have Do you have any thoughts on how other communities could um, adopt this model. But I also am curious, um, and Emily can jump in on this too, you know, one thing we're talking about is what type of skills you need or, or are expected, not need, but expected to hold these type of meetings. And I'm wondering if as a community, we need to do work before we can even create an assembly. That's a good question. Um, One of the things that the Community and Economic Development Office had as part of what it did was um, community justice centers. And one of the things that community justice centers sort of focused in on was facilitated leadership and that kind of training. Mm -hmm. So there was actually training for NPA members, leadership on facilitated leadership. What does it mean? You know, and that really is nothing too complicated other than how to run a meeting. Mm-hmm. how to do it well, some tools about how to do that. You know, when you're, you know, the, 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 I always thought it was fun. That the, the one thing you always do is when you're writing a list, change colors, you know, mm-hmm. so people could see the difference between one idea to the other. So little things like that. Um, and so everybody's trained. So you need to have, you need to be able to bring to folks who are 
typically not not understanding about what it is a meeting is and how to, how to that's again going back to giving people sort of some basic some basic skills and I think that this that's what the city has done and I think that's what you sort of need to do I think you can make a choice about whether it's going to be geographic areas or whether it's and disempower disen, disenfranchised folks principally or whether it's going to be every sort of district whether those districts sort of make some sense um, you know I I my idea initially was really how to empower low-income folks uh, in certain districts, not necessarily how to empower every citizen in the city mm-hmm. in that context. That was the right thing to do, but it also washed out sort of this sort of focusing on bringing disenfranchised people into the process a little of, more with a voice the things, that they typically don't have, right? So. One of the things that really blew me away when I ran for office was the relative um, right that people felt to my time and attention, even as a candidate, um, and how, you know, many members of our community who own homes, who have lived here for a long time, own businesses, um, very much felt comfortable, you know, asking me for like a full shared meal and my entire life story. Whereas, you know, some folks who rent or um, might work a bunch of jobs or, you know, live in sort of more outlying areas of the community or feel more disconnected would just be like really surprised that I even was sort of taking the time to knock on their door. Um, And that like, I was willing to stand there for more than a minute. And it was just like, and I knew that, you know, Um, but to just see it so starkly in front of me and to be in a position where I was really navigating a desire to give equal access and time um, or even more equal, more time and access to folks who were more disenfranchised and how difficult that was for the people with power and privilege to adjust to. Um, yeah. So I think in, in, in Burlington in particular, the, the things that have facilitated sort of that sort of engagement is the front porch forum, uh, which, started in my neighborhood in, in the south end of Burlington and has spread, I think, now throughout the whole state. And, then- and I think it's, sorry, I'm just going to jump in. For, I'm just going to give some local context on that for a second. I think it's really hard for folks in Brattleboro who might be on Front Porch Forum to understand how incredibly vibrant it is in some other areas of the state. Oh, so for us, it's like a bulletin board and announcement place in, say, Montpelier and some of the Burlington neighborhoods. It is like full-blown, multi-month conversations, similar to if anyone lives here, lived here long enough to remember when the Brattleboro Reformer had its talkback column mm. and you could call in and leave a message and they would publish it. Um, that had sort of some of the similar like multi-week arguing, debating, funny things about like who heard whose cat having sex and what alley kind of thing. <laughs> That's what happens on the front porch forum in some other places in Vermont. It would be so fun if like people really owned it like that at Brattleboro. Yeah, I mean, we're right now my our forum is debating uh, what what we all do on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Um, and, you know, that's the issue. But the other issues have been more serious and more and more difficult, shall we say. Uh, within the context. But then again, that is still a a class of folks who do that. You Mm -hmm. know, um, I, I spend a lot of time now in our work doing work with homeless folks. And so I'm, and also with folks now, much of our housing, uh, not a majority, but a good chunk of our housing is folks who are, you know, uh, new, new immigrants. Uh, And 
So we're constantly figuring out how do we make sure that they have access to our information, our education, our resources, the, the support we can give them. We now do translations available in 10 different languages. When you take that as an idea, translation, you know, and say, okay, that's language, but really cultural now needs a translation. You need to figure out what that process is that empowers people, that gives people access to resources, that gives people access to decision-making. And how do you translate that to other, other, other folks? It doesn't have to necessarily be people who are speaking Kurundi or you know, Somali or something else. It really is how do you do that? And it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to just so say, oh, well, just do this. Do these three things and you've got it all set. Uh, you know, phone it in. It's hard. It's hard to get people that access. I think for the, the, the things that we have done in the past, and you know, I do in our work now, is to, is to survey people in different forms, in different ways, mm-hmm. call people up, knock on people's door, uh, provide people an opportunity to sort of participate in ways uh, that are just, you know, just not, you have to sit in a meeting and raise your hand. Uh, and and I, I think that there are those forms, and I think they have to really be layered into sort of a frame. The idea is how to be more democratic about everything that happens, give people access to those resources and ideas. I you really I'm, have to. You need you need two or three, four layers of a cake uh, to really sort of make that work. I think one of the um, challenges between sort of a survey mechanism or even knocking on people's doors and Um, what happens in some meetings is the generative quality of conversation Um, Mm -hmm. and people really coming up with their own solutions rather than giving opinions on a solution that someone else has cooked up. Um, And so when I think about what um, devolving decision-making really means, it's about having, you know, I imagine it's community groups in some form saying what they actually want and then a city council or a select board making that happen rather than the select board coming up with a mm-hmm. scheme and just asking people what they think about that. Um, it's the shaping, it's the shaping of the frame that seems so powerful to me. Have you, I'm sure you've done like community cafe work where people are sort of in those much smaller conversations. You don't need to raise your hand in the same way. You can yeah, yeah, yeah. have smaller groups that big up, build up. Yeah, and, I, and I think the NPAs, when they do meet on occasion, will form, do a particular exercise and might go to that kind of thing, but they really are often enough, small enough so, so that you, it's, it's somewhat informal. When you watch these meetings on uh, TV or, uh, and I'm going, not pen, using the pandemic, because we're going to go to try to do this post pandemic, right? Um, when you do this, you, you, you know, it's fairly informal, usually a good person in the middle of the room facilitating and, you know, maybe people raising their hands. Usually it turns out to be a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for us, what, uh, and I think for the city, what it's also done is it's gone to uh, different populations of people and have discussions in those meetings. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were, uh, this is separate now from uh when I no longer worked at the city working for Champlain Housing Trust, and we were doing a pretty big development um, with lots of housing, converting these 24 acres of land that had not been developed before. Uh, we went to the various communities and said, what do you think? What, do you, what will you miss? What would you like? Uh, and had those kind of uh, conversations with uh, 
with folks. And you have to really basically go to those meetings. Mm-hmm. You go to somebody else's meeting and have that conversation. Yeah. So, you know, how do you, you know, I really haven't really thought about this. You're the first people who have asked me this question in a long time. So how do you, you know, how do you form, how do you form sort of something that allows for different communities to come together where people are more comfortable? You know, maybe it may be just sort of a uh, gay and lesbian trans youth. How do they, how do they sort of talk about what they need in terms of their stuff, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their community when they have those conversations? How do you, how do you do that with different sort of populations of folks from different parts of the world? Burlington, that's a, that's a thing. Um, it's, a, it's actually a thing down here. Um, yeah. I feel like we're the other place that has that. Yeah, the place thing. that has that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not at not at the scale that you all do, but and yeah, much yeah. more hidden. Um, but um, yes, we do. Yeah. I think yeah, it's we're, really we're you know we're at a we're at a place as a community or as communities down here where each nonprofit is really sort of taking a look at its board and saying like, what would it mean to be governed by the people who are most impacted by the work we do? And so we have, you know, um, more nonprofits per capita down here than anywhere else in the state. And the state has, I think, more nonprofits per capita than anywhere else in the country. And it's a little out of control. So we have like, you know, more than 50 nonprofits in this tiny, you know, tiny county that are all trying to find like the most impacted people to be on their boards. There's just not enough people to be on boards for that. We have, you know, our select board trying to get feet is really trying very hard right now to um, be listening to community members, but they have this very formal mechanism that they need to do their work in. Um, And so their meetings are now, you know, they're every, they seem to be every week right now and they Mm -hmm. go on for, Hour, five hours, hours, like hours and hours and hours. And that's a lot to, you know, ask of everyone. It's a lot, you know, I was on the agenda for a tax easement for my son's summer camp. And it was like at the end of the agenda. And I was on the Zoom for five hours, just like waiting for my spot on the agenda. So, and like, I have, you know, I can carry my laptop around the house and like, it was no real impact on my life. So we have all these different places that we're trying to do this thing so hard. But if it seems to me there was a place where the community said, this is the place where we gather and make decisions. Mm-hmm. You all can come dive in whenever you want to visit, but this is our place where we feel comfortable. We, we've set the norms and the culture where we know how we want to organize, where we have, you know, mm-hmm. I think it would really, sh- I think it would shift a lot of the possibility. So, so and, I think they could be, I, I think it could do that. And I, what I would say is that when you do that, uh, uh, you want to be able to make sure that your process also invites those other voices in different ways, you know, yeah. so that, so, you know, you, you know, you're, you have, you're having a, the typical meeting. We talked about it as being middle-class or folks who are skilled in sort of these reasons, this way of doing things, but to make sure that in that context, they are asking the questions of other communities that are affected. Mm-hmm. Those communities have access to it in a different, in ways that are not just sort of, you know, walls set up in terms of language and other things. Even just a process that allows it stuff mm-hmm. to go in from other places. As long as you can set that framework then and say, everybody is welcome. And then we're going to make sure that these other people have an act, you know, sort of a, a voice and a point of view in this so that when we mix the stuff together, we know that in fact, what we're coming out with is something that is really going to be good for everybody. So, I mean, that's a, if I had to rethink it, that's what I would, how I would come up with something that works. Thank you, Michael. You know, one place I think in Brattleboro specifically where we're missing some of the conversations that 
might be useful to be having around these issues is I would say representative town meeting in a way has some gaps because while we do elect folks who are supposed to represent um, their community, there's no requirement for those representatives to actually gather feedback from their district. Nor are those um, competitive races. Right. A lot of time. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but sometimes in, you'll be sitting in representative town meeting and people will say, well, I know for Brattleboro, we need to do this because everyone's struggling with this or that or the other thing. And I'm sure that's very true for their lived experience. But as far as actually having gathered conversations from their district, I don't know that that's really happening. Um, and so sometimes I wonder is representative town meeting um, representative? No, I mean, I think it's just, I, I, for my time on it, it feels like the point of it is more to be statistically representative than um, electorally representative or constituently representative or whatever it is. And I wonder, you know, um, so much of, so the skills that are needed that we keep on coming back to and the resources that are needed. And so one, there's nothing more disempowering in the world than being told you have power and then it turns out that you don't, right? So asking for people's opinions and then not doing anything with it is a terrible thing to do, right? That's better mm -hmm. than not even starting. Um, and I think about the CEDO office, the Community Economic Development Office in Burlington and how well resourced it is and how well resourced for decades, how well it's done at resourcing the rest of the community for decades. So offering tools and skills so that say a member, a town meeting representative actually has something in their hands that they can use to go perhaps, if that's what we want, go get feedback from their neighbors in a meaningful way. Um, and so the two sort of necessary resources for me would be one, the resource of actual decision-making power rather than just the force of opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that is to sort of set agendas for the select board or um, make resource decisions that are sort of devolved to the community level or whatever it is. And then the second thing is like resources to do this job well, whether that is, you know, facilitation skills or feedback, you know, survey skills or whatever it is, but have people whose job it is to actually like support people who want to do this. I mean, I think you, I think that's, um, you hit a, a important point that I, I should have known since I had been um, the CEDO director for a long time. Um, but I think, it, you know, you, when I've got, when I remember doing some work where I was doing some outside consulting work, I'd go to these communities and, and I'd say uh, to neighborhoods and, and the issues where they couldn't get their, they couldn't get their work started they couldn't really achieve what they wanted to achieve and they weren't really getting the support out of the city government to do the work yeah. uh, there was not a will at city government to make it happen and so really what you're talking what you really need to be able to do is you need like you said you need to bring people the support and resources you really need to be smart about that it just can't sort of say go ahead and organize mm -hmm. uh, here's a pad of paper and some pencils uh, knock yourself out hope mm -hmm. you get Hope, hope democracy works, you know. Um, you really have to go in there and really give the people the support to do the work that they need to do. 
And, and then, it's not, and then, it's not and rocket was, science, right? Like no, teaching, you know, like you can, there are a lot of toolkits that are f- available and that can be adopted to yeah. offer to community groups who want to do better organizing than they are or better right. feedback than they are, you know, and that's been work that's been developed all over the world for, you know, very formally for the last few decades. And it doesn't have to be a sophisticated policy think tank. It has to be people who are practical, who can impart those skills to other people so that they can go ahead and be practical about what they have to do. So really straightforward. Yeah. The other thing that I really appreciate about the CEDAW office um, that I think, Olga, you'll be really excited about is in addition to sort of the day-to-day work to support these um, groups that are in some ways operating on a day-to-day basis or a month-to-month basis, it also did a lot of visioning work um, to really sort of think into the future about what do we want this community to be. um, And hold that in a way that a select board can't, a mayor can't, um, a town meeting manager can't because they're really supposed, they're often on election cycles rather than on, history cycles. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really, can you tell us more about that? Yes, please. Huh. Well, let's, uh, uh, let's pick a topic. What do you want to, which one do you want? Cause I think Just we did the whole idea did a of, lot of visioning. Kinds of yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think, I mean, first, first one of the things that CETO did when it was first created was didn't separate out the different parts of what people think of community development. So economic development, helping businesses, small businesses and others, was right next to community development. You know, was was right also right next to housing as a mm-hmm. issue. It didn't separate those things out. It made sure those things were all integrated. And years later, uh, Clavel uh, talked about sustainability development when it was and that was an okay word to use, and you don't use that word as much. But it was around three E's. It was around the economy. It was around the environment. It was around equity. So you know, for for. For us, it was always trying to uh, ultimately talk to a lot of people, bring those things together into a vision, make sure various groups were represented, and then taking those things, these those things, and put, putting them into a framework that everybody would understand and, and, and have clarity about. When you sort of say sustainability is around making sure the environment is good, the economy is good, and the social equity, you could really then fill those boxes in with a whole pile of stuff. You really don't, they don't have to be just one thing all the time. They could be a variety of different kinds of things. But people could talk about that and say, yeah, you can't sacrifice the environment just for the economy. And the environment can't just be the most important thing without thinking about people's jobs and livelihood and how they get a, how they get a paycheck, you know? You really have to balance those things. So I think the visioning always has to be, so, um, has to have a sort of a, a big idea. You know, and different politicians, some politicians do that really well, right? I mean, you run a campaign, you come up with something. Uh, Make America Great is a failed idea, clearly. But uh, other thing, other ideas have had, uh, have had ways that people could fill it in in a way that allows individuals to sort of change the notion of what it is, what it really means, how it really works. Um, I've been really surprised how much build back better seems to resonate with people. Cause for me, it's just like, I mean, if nothing else, it's like linguistically awkward to me. Um, (laughs) And so I'm like, "Ah, I don't like that sentence. (laughs) I don't want to build things back better. But 
um, people can see a piece in it. What I heard you say about the CETO office is that it's sort of setting the vision with a set of sort of core values associated with it, but it's also translating it so people can wrestle with it on an individual level. So we have an incredible town plan here, um, but none of us ever look at it because it's inside a little book. Well, it's actually like, a big book. It's a really yeah. nice big book. Um, and I've read it and I'm sure a lot of people have read it, but in order to use it on a day-to-day -day basis, it needs to be, you know, someone needs to have the resources, time and energy to be sort of breaking it out into digestible pieces for community members to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. And we, that's sort of some of the capacity piece that's missing from how to really be doing the self-governance work in a meaningful way. And I think the idea really, the word really is capacity is how do you generate that capacity? And that's what CETA did. It generated the capacity for, for folks to be able to sort of go ahead and imagine and, and envision what it might be, how things could be different. And, and uh, if you don't have that, then it's, then things are sort of just, it's like to a 4th of July. It looks good for that 30, for that five seconds, but it dissipates. Mm -hmm. You really need to capture that uh, and give that support and uh, nurture it. And you don't, you, you really have to spend some money. Um, ultimately, it's about making and spending some money in order to say, this is this person who's going to bring this together. You know, locally, there's- Can I wait, just, I, I want to um, highlight something. We don't just, we don't just spend money into a void though. The money that you're spending is going to yeah. be a job for a community member. Yes, yes. So it's going to be enriching the community, both financially and sort of in terms of the capacity that you're spending yeah. that on. Uh, my apologies for jumping ahead too far in that one, but I no, think no, that's no, a, it's, that, it's uh, fine. No, you, no, I think you want you really just uh, you just don't want to spend money for the hell of it. You want mm -hmm. you're spending money in order to make sure that in fact the community's vision or the community's ideas are implemented in a good way, and that the community has a way of, of being facilitated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't take a huge amount of money. It just does take some. It does take some resources. So, we're we're coming uh, to nearing the end of the show. So we've, ta we've talked about a lot, but I would love to hear from you as best as you can summarize if, if there's other communities that are like, yeah, we want to run with these concepts and create our own form of NPA, whatever that will look like. What are some of like best practices and please avoid this <laughs> that you might want to recommend for other communities? Uh, well, you know, I, it, you, I would say that the, I would say you don't have to make it complicated initially. You know, I mean, the NPA was a very simple idea. These folks would come together. We, we created all this long list of things it could do, but ultimately it was, People in the neighborhood can gather in that room and talk and do stuff. They then they eventually formed themselves and said they said we want a steering committee, and then they all we also said okay let's have everybody encourage encourage everybody not to have like twenty pages of bylaws or two hundred page charter, but let's put together a page of things that we should pay attention to, you know different very simple and, and really so everybody created a page of how they would run and operate. And there you go. It's really that straightforward. And then and then you really have to nurture it and bring it support, bring it ideas, say to everybody who is a representative in the city, in the government, you need to go there when you talk about things. You have a development idea, you go there. 
you want to you want to change you want to determine which streets get repaired go to the NPA and ask them their opinion so now in Burlington everybody rolls through that place mm-hmm. you know it and and although they don't necessarily at different times they have decision making power although they don't have decision making power the question always comes from city council did you be you know when you went to the NPA or did you go to the NPA uh, or it's laid in that you have to do that Create the frame. It's straightforward as a frame. You give it support. You know, my issues now are how do you make sure all the disempowered folks are empowered in some way in that process? That's a, a challenge more than it's a, a fault, you know, a, a negative, right? It's just like, how do we do that? Um, but it's still a simple, it's still a simple frame. It really is the town meeting with everybody having a clear voice as opposed to a moderator and a set agenda and, uh, you know, that kind of thing where it's this, 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 it's no Robert's rules. You're in the room. Well, the, the rules may be, you know, you, you have to, you have to raise your hand. Yeah. And when we have a vote, we try to get consensus. If not consensus, then it's majority, you know, that those very simple mm-hmm. things, you know? Um, but it's, but it's a, a, a less formal, more like here's our living room. When I was director of the Kingston Youth Center, I said that was the neighborhood's living room. That's where the neighborhood go and they play pool, they play cards, they have a drink, uh, not a real drink, just a drink. Um, uh, you know, but this is the place where the neighborhood can gather mm-hmm. and then talk about what's going on. What's wrong with the kids? How do we get the kids uh, to, to a recreation center? How do we get, you know, to something else? How do I, what about the stoplight? Wait, the school is discriminating against my kids because they're black. That's where the conversation happens. You know? So you have to have a place where the conversation happens. Happens in front porch forum, but you need to really, I think, a place to people for meet. Mm-hmm. The process, simple process. That's the best practice. Don't don't complicate it too much. Michael Monty, uh, thank you so much for for joining us today and helping us crack this nut of community participation that Emily and I keep circling back to. Um, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 LP Brattleboro. I said that twice because <laughs> it's such a good show. We'll air every Friday at 2 p.m. on the radio station as well as Emily's YouTube channel and BCTV. Emily, if people need to find you, where can they do that? You can find me at emilykornheiser.org where you can find the links to my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, phone number, email address, and my weekly community conversation, which is every Saturday at 10 a.m. The Zoom link is also on the website. And if you want to find out more information on Burlington's neighborhood planning assemblies, you can go to the town's website at burlingtonvt.gov. Thanks for joining us, everyone.